one. I want to teach you on one word this morning, and that's the word peace. The word peace, P-E-A-C-E. Romans chapter number one, and I want to read verse number seven. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, help us for the next few moments as we teach. Give us all ears to hear. Let this teaching minister directly to our hearts and minds. We thank you for the mighty power of the Holy Spirit. We honor you and praise you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen, amen. Before I get started, let me just go ahead and remind all of you that like to open up your gum and your candy while I'm teaching, open it now and open it fast so that you don't spend 30 seconds crinkling paper and all of that. Okay, here we go. If you've ever taken the time to read this letter of Paul, then you understand that Paul is writing to a city that was really quite hostile toward Christianity, and the Roman people certainly weren't fans of Jesus Christ. When Paul takes the time to write his letters, usually he has a trilogy of terms, grace, mercy, and peace. And usually the word peace is somewhere at the beginning of all of these letters. It's a very important thing considering the church was on the run for their life, Christians were being persecuted, and you can see why peace would be such an important characteristic for people. They were stressed. They couldn't sleep well. Family members were being placed in prison. And for him to come along and speak about peace, I think that's an important thing. And for us, we live in a world that doesn't have a lot of it. They try to offer it, but they don't have the true peace to offer to believers. And that's why Jesus says in John 14, verse 27, I'm giving you peace that the world can't afford to give you. Some people look for peace in different ways. Some people stare at peace in the bottom of an empty bottle. Some people try other substances. Some people try to find peace in the warm embrace of someone that they love. Some people try to find peace by moving from place to place and never are able to find it. But you can see in verse 7, it tells us the source of peace. That's God, our Father. But it also tells us who are to be the recipients of that peace, the saints of God. And you need to know that whenever you do need peace for your life, you need to go directly to your Heavenly Father. Don't waste your time trying to find your peace in some relationship or your peace in somebody else's mind or thoughts or opinion. Find your peace directly in the heart of God and in what God gives to you because there's an immeasurable supply of it. And people die. Folks are disturbed sometimes. 
Here's somebody that may have been married for 40, 50, 60, 70 years and may have never, ever written a check before. I've never even put gas in a car. Maybe have never paid a bill. And when a spouse passes away, they're, they're suddenly disturbed and troubled by the fact they wonder how they're going to get along. God's able to bring peace in a situation like that, you know. Whenever you come in contact with people who are like that, then you can tell them about the God that you serve and you can point them in the right direction. So this is why Paul is saying to these ones that are in Rome that they are beloved of God. They're called to be saints, that they're favored by God, that God cares and is concerned with who they are. And he has grace and, of course, he has peace from the Father that comes to the believers. And I've needed a lot of peace in my life in different circumstances, especially when we found circumstances to be troublesome. And God's able to cause those raging waters to become peaceful in your life. And nobody can do that for you but the king. You can look in a variety of different directions. Look at how they do it on the television programs. You'll see how disturbed and anxious people are. The sitcoms and the movies do everything they can to stir up fear and anxiety and doubts and unbelief in the hearts of people. But the one thing that the Word of God is going to provide for you and for me is a peace that surpasses all understanding. People won't even be able to comprehend why it is that you are the way that you are. Turn to Romans chapter 5 and notice verse number 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if we were to ask you for a definition of justification, then you may or may not be able to provide one, but we'll help you to understand it this way. When we were in sin... We lived in darkness. We were sinners. We were separated from God. There was a great gulf that separated us and the king. But one day we believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and having accepted his death on the cross in our place, and having believed in his resurrection, all of our sins were immediately eradicated. He lifted every burden. He lifted every sin. He washed it all away. So now it is just as if I'd never sinned. I'm justified. You're justified. That means that all the charges against you have been dropped. You're acquitted. It's not that you and I were not guilty, but it's that Jesus stood in between the wrath of God that was deservedly coming to us, and he received all of that on the cross. And the Bible says, since we're justified by faith, we have peace with God. There was a time in your life, in my life, there was enmity or hostility between us and God. 
You may say, well, Pastor, I was raised in church, or I've been around people who've known God. I never was hostile toward God. I never cursed God. I didn't blaspheme. I didn't say anything against God. No, but you weren't passionate, and you weren't fervent, and your indifference toward God, he took it as a posture of hostility. Because either you are for him or you're against him. And if you're not on his side, there is no peace between you and God. And this is what is wrong with telling people today, God isn't unhappy with you. You hear preachers tell sinners that all the time. God isn't angry with you. He isn't displeased with you. That's deception. He's very unhappy. There's no peace for the wicked, the Scripture says. There's no peace between God and an unbeliever because the psalmist made it very plain. God is angry with the sinner every day. Not sometimes, every day. But the moment we pass through the blood and then we come to Novocaine, there's a relationship that has been established and now reconciliation has occurred and there's peace between God and and me, because the new covenant is the peace treaty. So I can say as a Christian, God's not angry with me. And you can say as a believer, God's not angry with you. You have a covenant. It's like the old Indians would sign the peace treaties or they'd do, you know, something, make themselves blood brothers, and everybody cut their hand and then shake just to become one, to show that kind of union. Jesus died on the cross. He cut the covenant through his blood. Our relationship now is secure. All of us in here are brethren, brothers and sisters of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, children of the resurrection of Jesus, all of us. So we're justified, and we're innocent, and we're clear. Now to offer another way of explaining this, Don Richardson, many years ago, went to preach the gospel to the Sawi tribe in western New Guinea. And that area now is called Iranjaya. But when he went to that particular area, these folks were cannibals. They exalted betrayal and deception. And they went through all of these Different, uh, different qualities and characteristics that they loved, which murder and everything else. But he was trying to tell these people the story of the gospel, and when he told them the story of Jesus, they thought the hero of the story was Judas because the way their tribes operated it was all about chicanery and trickery. And he needed to find a way to reach these folks, and he found it when he discovered that whenever two tribes were at war with one another, the only way that these tribes would cease and desist from all of their murder, one of the tribal fathers would give his son to the other tribe to raise, and as long as that son was alive, there'd be peace between the tribes. And so Mr. Richardson wrote that very popular book called The Peace Child. And if you think about that, it's only because of the fact that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him, that people today don't perish but have everlasting life. And think about it, as long as the son is alive, we have peace with God. 
Jesus truly has become the peace child because his death and then his resurrection secured for you and me access to God and peace with God. How troubled were you before you became a Christian? How disturbed was your heart before you truly surrendered unto the Lord? Some people have one foot in the world, one foot in the kingdom. In effect, they have everything in the world, but just believe they've got one foot in the world and one in the kingdom. They have a divided heart, one that's divided between the things of this world and the things of God, but yet their, their desires are holy for the things of this world. But then when you fully surrender, then that's where you find the peace that God wants you to have. Now tomorrow, of course, there'll be little babies running around all over America collecting candies from people's homes, and most people will forget that October 31st is the Reformation Day. That back in 1483, Martin Luther was born. And this young man... His dad wanted him to become a lawyer, and he one day got caught out in the middle of a storm, and he prayed, and he cried out, St. Anne, he's a Roman Catholic, he said, St. Anne, if you help me, I'll give my life to you. And so in the middle of that thunderstorm, he somehow survived, and he immediately went into an Augustinian monastery and became a monk became educated in Roman Catholic doctrine, particularly to become a monk and to teach amongst the German people. Well, he ended up going to university, got a doctor of theology degree, got a, a job at the University of Wittenberg, and began to read and teach the Psalms, Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. And in the process of reading those books, he came to realize we should not pray to saints because they don't hear our prayers. And he came to realize that we are justified not by what we do, but by what Jesus has done. He came to realize that even though he was a cradle Catholic, that there was nothing in the religion that could bring salvation to him. He read the Bible and saw that by the shed blood of Jesus and by his resurrection, he's justified with God. Well, there was a man named John Tetzel who had been sent by Rome to help collect money to build St. Peter's Basilica over in Italy. And John Tetzel was giving out these little pieces of paper called indulgences. They were plenary indulgences. That meant that if you wanted all of your past sins and future sins removed, forgiven, you gave money towards the basilica in Rome, and he gave you the piece of paper called an indulgence, which said all your sins were then forgiven, past and future. Well, he saw this and saw it as a total abuse of the people, a total abuse of biblical authority. And so he was so unhappy, he sat down and in Latin wrote 95 statements regarding this, went to the church door, 
and then tacked it up on the door, and basically that started all of the discussions. And the day he did that was October 31st, 1517. One man said there needs to be some changes, and because of what he did, it brought about massive change. Well, the Roman church wasn't happy. And the Roman church called him in on the carpet because of what he was saying. How dare you say that what the Pope is doing is wrong? Martin Luther started writing books, and he wrote a book to the politicians. He wrote a book to the preachers. Then he wrote a book to all the laity in the church, and he was talking about the Babylonian captivity of the church because of the Roman mass system and because of prayers to dead saints, and because of other things that he felt were egregious and in error. And the Roman church eventually condemned him as a heretic and sentenced him to die. Well, he was abducted by some friends of his and secreted it away into a castle where he translated the Bible and produced a whole lot of literature that sent the Reformation around Europe. Think about that. One man God used to cast a rock in the, in the pond in Germany and the ripple effect went out all across Europe because somebody identified iniquity and error and then tried to correct it. One man came to realize he was justified by faith in God and not by his membership in a particular church. Look at how different the world is right now. In his youth, all the Bibles were in Latin. Roman priests were ignorant of the Bible. The people were more ignorant than the priests. But William Tyndale, another reformer, wanted people to see the Scriptures in their own tongue. And that man, under the pain of death, translated the scriptures into English and was strangled and burned to death because he wanted you and me to have a Bible in English. The Reformation. People found out they were justified by faith. The Apostle Paul came to realize that justification was not according to the Greco-Roman belief system. Some of them honestly believed that Caesar was a god in the flesh. Various deities had their own cults in different cities throughout the Roman Empire so that Diana was a goddess of fertility. Have you ever seen a statue of her? She has breasts all across the front because they honestly believe she caused women to get pregnant, caused the soil to be fertile. Apollo, chief speaker, Statues of him standing there sometimes with an arrow in his hand and a bow and with wings attached to his ankles because they believed that he was a very quick messenger and could move rapidly. Jupiter, the head of all the gods. All of these people believed that the only way to keep the gods happy, you had to perform certain tasks and make pilgrimages to certain cities. Paul received the gospel and came to believe we're justified by faith and because of what Christ has done, we have peace with God. That must have been a very heartwarming message to receive. 
to spend all of your life trying to make God happy and never really knowing whether or not God was happy with you, and then to discover all I need to do is believe in Jesus. I think a lot of people learn to sleep good at night. You know? And you think of how many people today honestly believe the only way to make God happy, they've got to get to Mecca at least one time in their life. One time. Got to get to Mecca and walk around that black stone and then pick up a rock and throw it. I wonder how many Jewish people are there today that, that honestly believe they've got to keep every jot and tittle of Moses' law. Having rejected the Messiah that came and died on the cross, who, who bore their sins and, and to whose cross the law was affixed, so they no longer had to bear that. There's a whole lot of Jewish people to this day holding on to those laws and rituals. Wonder how many people in the Philippines that are Roman Catholics still make all kinds of pilgrimages to different places. Folks around the world trying to get to holy waters and holy sites, and people walking up to dead people in caskets and, and sprinkling holy water on a body. And they honestly believe that's going to bring favor or blessing to the decedent. People looking for ways to make God happy. And the best way to make God happy is to fall in love with his son and then live a Christian life. It's simple. It's easy. I knew a man one time that was Hindu. He was a very wealthy man. He told me with his own lips that his father was a very devout Hindu but couldn't leave the house because if he left the house, it was likely he'd break one of the Hindu laws. So he just stayed in the house all of his life so that his sons could go out and work and make money so that he could live a holy life at home. That's a terrible way to live. The Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God's given us all things to be able to enjoy them, so we should enjoy them. Let's look at another verse. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. We're working on peace. Colossians chapter 3, notice verse number 15. You know who the source of peace is. You're the recipient of that peace. But notice now in verse 15, it says, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Peace should be the dominant characteristic of your life. That God doesn't want you to be anxious every day of your life in all of your emotions daily in an upheaval. He wants you to be able to have the same kind of peace that our Savior Jesus had. What kind of peace did he have? You remember that storm? And Jesus had said to the disciples beforehand, he said, look, um, let's get on the boat. Let's pass over to the other side. The disciples said, that sounds like a pretty good plan. Let's do it. So they got on the boat, and sure enough, Jesus decided he's going to go take a nap. He went down below, and he's sleeping, and the disciples are up there on deck, and they're having a good time resting and reclining, and then pretty soon in scoops in all of this wind, and pretty soon the temperature drops, and then the wind is moving the water, and the water all of a sudden becomes choppy, and they're up there, and they realize there's water coming in the boat. So they decide we need to try to work on this. And so, of course, they get buckets, and I mean, they're trying to get the water out and doing everything they can to get the water out, but more water is coming in before they can get it out. And finally, someone has this glorious, bright idea. They say, look, why don't we go and wake up Jesus? That's usually how it happens. You know, we do everything we can in the flesh, try to save ourselves, 
And then when it doesn't work, then finally somebody says, why don't we just pray? Yeah, I mean, that wouldn't it seem like that'd be easier to just do that first and save you all the muscle work, you know, instead of going through all of that. But they didn't, and we don't. And they finally went to Jesus, and of course Jesus, in a dead sleep, woke up all these men with hair sticking to their faces, soaking wet. Master, don't you care that we're dying? Now, how'd you like to wake up like that? Hey, you're in a dead sleep, and, and, and something has happened in the house, and your kids have broken something, something is spilling, and then they coming in, and they're shaking you real fast, and they're screaming your name, and you wake up, and you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's exactly the kind of scenario it was here. And Jesus gets up, walks up there on the top of the deck, and all of that stuff is blowing back and forth, and he rebukes the wind, and he says, shut up, stop it. It goes calm. Then the waters become tranquil. And then everybody's like, oh, my goodness, what kind of man is this? And that's when Jesus has to talk to them disciples and say, look, we've been walking together for a little while. Thomas, have you ever known me to tell a lie? No, sir. Matthew, have you ever heard me say something that later on I needed to apologize about? No. Well, Peter, what did I say to all of you before we got on this boat? Sir, you said let's pass over to the other side then what does this storm have to do with what I said to you? If I said we're passing from this side to the other side, it wouldn't matter if there's an earthquake and the earth would have opened up. This ship is going to survive because my word does not fail. And when you begin to think about the things in your own life, how many times have you gotten your eyes off of the Word of God and on to the storm and lost the peace that you once had in your heart. Happened to Peter. Peter was on the boat one time, and he's sitting up there, and uh, he, the disciples slowly turn to make their way to the other side, and again, in the middle of a rainstorm and all of that, and they look up, and as fast as they were trying to get it across that, that water, here comes Jesus. He's walking across that water, and the Bible says he would have passed by the boat had they not called his name. And then he they looked up and Peter said, well, Lord, if that's you, ask me to come to you. And Jesus said, Peter, come. Well, Peter, of course, you know, he, he starts, he climbs overboard because he said, boys, you going to come with me? Oh, no, Peter, you can do this on your own. We'll stay right in here. And, and he put his leg over, and, I mean, he, he's getting out there, and he steps out there, and either that water solidified under his feet or somehow God made him buoyant, and he just kind of stood up there on that water. He took a step. He took another step. He's getting closer to Jesus. And then the Bible says he looked at the boisterous wind. A storm swirling around him, and suddenly that boy, straight down in the bottom, like an iron duck, he's going down, and Jesus reached out and grabbed him and saved him when Peter cried out for the Lord's help. That man was peaceful so long he had his eyes on Jesus. You get your eyes off of the king, and you start thinking about how difficult the circumstances of your life, and you will be filled with anxiety. You'll be filled with doubts and frets 
and everything else. And if you're not careful, you'll learn to live with doubts, anxiety, and frets, and they'll become a normal component of your life when God says, let the peace of God rule your heart. Now, the word let means it's entirely within your power. You make a choice. Do you want to trust God? Or do you want to be confused and in chaos? I like peace myself. It just seems like that works a whole lot better than chaos. You know, one time, back when Tiffany and I were dating, we had gone, we were in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and so Benny Hinn had come to New Orleans, and we decided we were going to go. Well, because I was at Swaggart's church, I had an opportunity to go up on the platform and sit, but didn't want to sit on the platform. I wanted to sit in a good spot because I knew there'd be 20,000 people or so at the meeting. So Tiff and I, we made the drive from Baton Rouge to New Orleans and, and got there, got situated, and, I mean, a lot of folks showing up, and then Tiff and I went in, got our seat, and, I mean, four or five-hour service, I mean, praise and worship, a lot of old hymns, but just absolutely beautiful hymns and choruses. We just, just loved it. And then pretty soon you're watching stuff happen and people are getting healed and, and, and all of this kind of a thing. And so finally, towards the end, 20,000 people there, I say to Tiffany, honey, we don't need to wait and be the last ones out of here. we got a long way to drive. We need to be the first ones out of here. So sure enough, we got up, first ones started leaving the auditorium. So we leave the bleacher section where we were, go out in the hallway, go down. It, the whole thing is circular, you know, and there are entrances and exits everywhere. So we get out and go downstairs, and we're walking out in the parking lot, and as we're headed to the car, I realized after I parked, I never paid attention to what entrance we came in. And so we start walking around the parking lot, and then it starts raining. And it starts pouring. And I mean, it is coming down so hard that I'm soaked, and every step I took, we still couldn't find the car. We walked all around that place, could not find the car. Pretty soon, hundreds of people are outside. They're getting in their cars. They're driving away, and Tiffany and I are still walking around soaking and wet and as frustrated and as angry as I was. She had a hysterical fit and started laughing and couldn't stop. You say, well, what happened? In the end, we finally did find the car, but it was only after it was the last car in the parking lot. The very last car to leave was Tiffany and myself. It was crazy. You can see I, I need some peace sometimes. Uh, I was not a happy camper that evening. I'm telling you, I wasn't happy at all. And, and when the Scripture says that the peace of God rule in your heart, I needed a lot of it that evening. But see, all of us have circumstances that come up where sometimes we're out of peace. And, and the circumstances, even though they don't have power to cause us to lose that peace, we just don't always yield to that. 
and we allow the circumstances to cre- create in us a little anger, complaining spirit, murmuring spirit, or whatever it is. I didn't like the rain, and I liked even less the fact that she was laughing. And we couldn't find <laughs> where that car was. Turn to Romans chapter 14 quickly. Romans chapter 14. Once we know who to go to for peace and once we receive peace, then according to Romans 14, verse 19, we should apply peace. Romans 14, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. It's a very interesting chapter. In this chapter, you have people that are having disagreements about what days are important, less important, not important, about what foods to eat, what drinks to avoid. And Paul is telling us in verse 1 of chapter 14 that we shouldn't receive brothers in order to argue with them and fight with them. He says in verse 2, one person believes they can eat everything, all kinds of meat, then somebody else thinks they should be a vegetarian, just eat herbs. But he says the one that does eat, he shouldn't despise the one that doesn't, and the one who doesn't eat shouldn't be angry towards the one that does. And in verse 5, he says that one man esteems one day, another esteems every day alike. Everybody should be fully persuaded in their own mind. But he goes on to say in verse 8, whether we live or die, we do this unto the Lord. And who are we to judge another man's servant? God is big enough to handle us because it's before him we live and die and we remain accountable. Well, everybody's different, you know. If you're Seventh-day Adventist, you've got to do church on Saturday, and if you do church on Sunday, you've already taken the mark of the beast. That's what the Adventists believe. Well, I haven't taken the mark of the beast, and we're here on Sunday anyhow. Other people in the Middle East... They go to church on Friday. When I lived in the Middle East, I did church on Friday, just like thousands of other Christians. didn't really matter to me whether it was a Friday or Saturday, so long as I could gather with the saints. Presently, we're in church five nights a week, so you know I don't care what day of the week or night of the week it is that we gather, so long as we're able to fellowship But then it's also the same even when it comes to food, because when Paul is talking about food in Romans chapter 14, solids and liquids, he's not talking about food in general. He's talking about specific food. And you have to read Romans 14 along with 1 Corinthians 8 when he's talking about food that is offered or dedicated to idols. Now, we don't have a problem with this here. And it's not even a big deal, but it's a big issue overseas. And the first time I ever came in contact with it, I was sitting with one of our Arab families when I was in my 20s. And we had some guests that came over. And I'm listening to this conversation in Arabic, and they're asking the host where they bought the food. Well, of course, in the Middle East, 
if you go to the market, then in the market you've got an area where all the Christians have their stores and grocery stores, and they sell clothes and food in this section. Over here, you have a section where all the Muslims sell their goods. And if you have Jewish people in that community, the Jewish people are here. If you have Hindus or anybody else, they have their own quarter where they sell. It's the same thing in Jerusalem to this day. You have different quarters where you can find different people that are selling their goods. And so this family wanted to know where the food came from because they did not want the food if it came from the Muslim quarters or somewhere where people had dedicated that food to Allah or to their gods. And so as I listened to this whole discussion, I realized here you have people that come out of the background of another religion, then they come into the kingdom of God, and they become Christian, but their conscience still won't allow them to eat some of these things. If you were raised not to eat pork, it's a chore for you, even though you're a Christian, to start eating stuff you've never eaten before. And Paul is saying in Romans 14, you ought not put in front of people the kind of foods that you know they're struggling with. So I just made a decision back in those days I wouldn't eat anything that I knew had been dedicated to any kind of other religion or any other God, even though I know as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, there is no other God. There is no other religion. But he said, if, if this caused my brother or sister to stumble, then all the days that the earth stands, I won't eat it. That's what he said. That's what he said. And you can see in Romans 15, verse 2, let every one of us please his neighbor for his good unto edification. So we're not trying to hinder uh, people in their faith with God because when you sin against someone with a weak conscience, the Scripture says you sow sin against Christ. So verse 21 of chapter 14, it is good neither to eat flesh nor drink wine nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth or is offended or is made weak. They'll grow out of it as they hear the word, but when they're at that level, then it's just best not to bother them. So that's why when it comes to how I eat, that's never been an issue with me. I don't even ask people when I'm overseas where the food came from doesn't really make me a difference. I just need it to be edible. I'm going to eat it, you know, and, and I'm not going to have any problem at all. But then in the same chapter, he goes on, and he, as you can see in verse 21, he's talking about wine. Now, let's, let's remember that in the Old Testament, the first time you come in contact with wine and strong drink like that, Mr. Noah comes out of that boat, plants a vineyard. Years later, he ends up drunk and he's naked, and his, his children come in there and see him. Well, throughout the Old Testament, you have a whole lot of parties and a whole lot of feasts, and there's obviously wine and stuff like that that's flowing. People drink it socially and everything like that. And, you know, people like to remind me that at the wedding at Cana, Jesus turned the water into wine. He did. I don't know if he drank any. I mean, he multiplied the loaves of bread and fishes. I don't know if he ate any that day either. But they like to remind me of that. But here's what I do know. Jesus did say of the fruit of the vine, at the Passover, of the fruit of the vine, I will no more drink of this again until I drink it with you in heaven. See? That's what Jesus said. 
Now, if you can get me some wine that Jesus made, I'll probably drink it with you. But I'm probably not going to drink anything that somebody made in their basement at all. During the Passover, they couldn't even eat unleavened bread with yeast. It's fermented. So it's doubtful that they probably had fermented wine. They couldn't have it, have fermented bread. But here's fact number one. After Calvary and the resurrection, you don't find any Christian drinking strong drink or wine socially. Anywhere in the book. After the resurrection, you don't find it at all. In fact, you have Paul telling Timothy, drink a little wine for your often infirmities, medicinal purposes. No longer drink water. So obviously Timothy wasn't touching wine and Paul had to tell him to go ahead for medicinal purposes. He said, well, pastor, is it okay uh, for medicinal purposes? Look, I'm not your doctor. I don't know what a doctor is going to tell you. Ancient times, they didn't have any of the kind of technology that we have right now, but I do know there are people that take advantage of that verse because my brother did one time. And he told me, my older brother, he, my older brother, he drank and did all kinds of drugs. And when he was doing all of that, I was telling him about this. And, man, you need to leave that stuff alone and turn from all that stuff and destroy you. He said, well, look, isn't there something in that book? Isn't there something in that Bible that says you can drink a little wine if, if you're not feeling well? I said, yeah. He said, well, I'm sick all the time. That's what he told me. That's what he told me. He said, I'm sick all the time. So understand then that, that when it comes to strong drink and liquor in the Bible, what you don't ever find with Christians is us imbibing it socially. You don't find us making it, and you certainly don't find us distributing it. I've always thought it amazing that in the Middle East, all the people that owned the bars and liquor stores were Christians. The Muslims would not ever allow liquor to be a liquor station to be owned by a Muslim. But they'll let a Christian or somebody of another religion have it because they don't care about defiling other people and messing with their conscience. It's important to know that. I was in England one time. I used to preach there a lot back in the mid-90s, and I was visiting with this family. And so after the evening meal in Europe, those Christians over there, they, they don't have a problem at all drinking. And so after the, after the meal, they came to me, and they said, Brother Darrell, would you like some bubbly? I said, uh, some what? Some bubbly. <laughs> no. I said, what is that? Champagne. I said, no, I don't, don't need any of that. So the second night after the service, we get home, and, and they said to me, oh, Brother Darrell, would, like, would you like a little glass of bubbly? I said, no, don't, don't want any bubbly. And so the third night, they didn't even ask me, but while we were sitting around, they said, you know the problem with you Christians or you folks are too starchy? I said, well, I said, you, you, you can call me anything you want, but there'll be no bubbly in this belly. And I don't want your liquor, and I don't want your strong drink. The one thing I have learned about, about Europeans and being over there, they have very little effect on the communities in which they live. And if you think about that, when, when, out here, you, you find it all the time. You go to a reception for somebody that is graduated, and people that call themselves Christians have brought 
kegs of beer and got it for all the adults and everybody else right there drinking in the garage and other places. And I'm thinking, what kind of foolishness is this? When we first came up here, we we, we would go home sometimes, and uh, after visiting different churches and being around Christians, we just kind of sit there and shake our head and say, oh, my goodness, what? What, what What is this? I mean, we got people talking tongues that drink liquor and talking tongues and cuss people out. And we were like, what kind of creatures are these? We'd never seen them. I mean, she, she comes out of the Bible Belt. I, I've preached all through the Bible Belt around the world. People give their hearts to Christ. They actually walk with God. And people were passionate about God. I came up here, and Christianity just seemed like something you did on a Sunday. The men went because the wives drugged them there. They didn't really want to be there, but they had to go. You know, there's a fundraiser. Got to go eat some fish or something like that. But we don't want to go. We leave that for the ladies that are sewing the quilts and stuff. Well, I told my wife, I said, we're going to have to create a whole new culture, you know, for how we live. Otherwise, that pressure get on us, and before you know it, we'll be doing that. And can you imagine... If myself and the leadership in any of our churches were at the local bar and we were sitting there throwing back a few cold ones and drinking and having a good time and yucking it up, do you know how fast that would go around these towns? Before we ever got home, I mean, folks would be texting while we're there. And you know what you would do? I know exactly what you would do. You would quietly absent yourself from the church or... Throw me out of here. Why in the world would anybody want to have a preacher and leadership that are involved with that kind of stuff? See? God hadn't called you to put any kind of strong drink in your body that's going to impair your judgment. The Bible says be sober-minded. Sober-minded. And you can't be sober-minded when you put that in, and I can promise you, you start getting involved with that, you're going to lose your peace. Some of the most, most passive people, you put liquor in them, they're ready to fight anybody. Like a bull, they're ready to take on anybody at any time. Sometimes the most passive people, then they're ready to jump on people and shout and scream. Why? Because they're out of character. Out of character. There, there's something else inside of it. So in closing, Romans 14, verse 19 says, For us that possess the peace of God, let us therefore follow after things which make for peace. Be a peacemaker. You can create it. You can create peace. You can also destroy it. Be the kind of person that's going to make peace in your home, make peace in your church, make peace with your neighbor. Don't be so angry or allow yourself to be put in a position where you're going to let the devil have control over your life. Does this make sense? Very important. Very important to know this. Because Christians can walk with God and follow the peace of God. Amen. Amen. Come on, let's stand this morning. Let's stand. Yeah, peace. Praise the Lord. I guess it's a good thing, Pastor, not a winemaker. Oh, my, that'd be, that'd be tough, folks. I'm telling you, that'd be tough. Yeah. Somebody said, Pastor's got a, he's got a steal out in the backyard. Yeah, I've got to go back and watch him when he gets busy. Boy, I tell you, he makes a lot of noise, but he has a good time back there. Oh, no, none of that. 
If I was preaching and pastoring in the Appalachian Mountains, I'd probably be running through the woods at night because they'd be chasing me with what I preach. But I wouldn't change at all. I wouldn't change at all. Father, we thank you that your word is true and it's powerful. God, we do want to be peacemakers as you placed in the Beatitudes. We want to be people that are dominated by peace and ruled by peace. We want your power to be manifested in our lives, O God. So, Lord, when you look down upon us this morning, I know you see people that are flawed and you see us that are imperfect, but you also see us that are holy because of our relationship with Christ. So, God, forgive us all of our sins. Help us every day to walk closer to you and to be an example to those that are around us. These things, oh, God, we pray for in Jesus' mighty name and everyone said, Amen, amen, amen. When?